One night I received a phone call from a girl I had had in youth group the year before, and she had just discovered that she was pregnant. And these were the words as we talked that she kept repeating over and over on the phone. What am I going to do now? What are people going to think? What are my parents going to think? What are they going to say? I just don't know. What am I going to do? I want you to put yourself in her place for just a moment. Imagine being a young woman, a teenager, about 15 years old, who discovers that she is pregnant and her world has just been turned upside down. Well, that is the beginning of our story this morning. You see, just a few weeks before this, probably 15-year-old woman had had a very strange experience. She was just at home going through a normal day. It was her normal routine. There was absolutely nothing different about that day. She had said her prayers. She was going about straightening up the house. She was helping maybe prepare dough for an upcoming meal. And she was probably daydreaming about the day when she would be doing this in her own home for her own husband and family. And that day wasn't far off because this young girl was betrothed. She was just waiting for her fiancé to come and to get her so they could have their wedding celebration and then he would take her to their new home. But in the midst of her daydreaming, something incredible and unexpected happened. An angel of the Lord appeared next to her. I mean, who would imagine an angel coming to Nazareth? Jerusalem, sure, it's the city of God. To one of the patriarchs, absolutely, or one of the great leaders of Israel, we can see that happening. But to a young girl in a backwater town, no way. But this young woman still remembers the scene from weeks ago, and as she does so, it still strikes her as odd. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. For such wonderful words, though, they left young Mary troubled. What is going on? What does this mean? And then the angel gave her an incredible message, one that she still hasn't been able to forget. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom, his kingdom will never end. Now, over and over in the week since, these words have been playing on repeat in her mind. The child would be great, the Son of the Most High. The angel said he would reign forever and his kingdom would be without end. Would he be the long-awaited Messiah? But it still left her as puzzled today as it did that day before. How can this be? I mean, I know where babies come from. I've had the talk. And that thing you have to do in order to have a baby? Yeah, I haven't been doing that. So how is this going to work? But the angel said something profound. Something she hasn't been able to forget. That the baby would be from the Holy Spirit that this child would be the Son of God, that we are to call Him Jesus, which means the Lord saves, and nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. No word from God ever fails. And just in case she wondered she might start to doubt, the angel gives her a sign. He says, Your cousin Elizabeth, 
who has never been able to get pregnant no matter how long she has tried, well, she's pregnant. She is with child because nothing is impossible with God. God is in the business of doing impossible things. That's his preferred MO. That's what he does. Now, for us, this is a story that many of us have grown up with. It's one that we know. It lies at the heart of the Christmas season and the incarnation story. But let's take it back to first century Judea and Mary's day. Because Mary, as a young teenage girl, is about to encounter a lot of shame. She's pregnant outside of marriage, and the only person who will get the blame is her and Joseph. She has an incredible story, a great explanation, but who's going to believe it? The Holy Spirit, huh? Yeah, right. I mean, the community would talk behind her back. These are people she had known her entire life who were now going to see her differently. What were her parents going to say? And oh, what about Joseph? There's no way he's going to believe this explanation. So what does this mean? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my baby? What am I going to do now? In fact, although Mary agreed to it and believed, I, I think she still needed some assurance. Because the first thing that we see next in our text is Mary leaving town. She gets out of Nazareth and she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And I think it's because she needs to be certain. She wants that assurance. She needs to truly see if God can do impossible things because her world has been turned upside down. One minute she was looking forward to her upcoming wedding, the celebration, the party, and starting her married life. Now she is newly pregnant and facing an unknown future. And so she goes to the only person she thinks might understand, the person who might give her some comfort, the person who she hopes will know what it is that she's going through. And I can't imagine what she's feeling as she travels all the way to Elizabeth and Zechariah's house. And as Mary walks in the door, Elizabeth stands up to greet her and she sees her pregnant belly but before Mary can get any words out, filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth pronounces a blessing upon her. She says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is the one who has believed the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And I imagine the tears welling up in Mary's eyes. Tears of joy at seeing Elizabeth's growing belly. Tears of relief knowing that God has done an incredible, miraculous thing for her cousin and for her. Tears at the words of this blessing that have been pronounced. And tears, well, simply because this moment is just overwhelming. And in this moment of joy, Mary does what comes naturally to her, but might seem so odd to us. Mary sings a song. The first two chapters of Luke's gospel actually contain four songs. We have Mary's, which we found here this morning. We have Zechariah's coming just a few verses later at the birth of his son, John. 
We have angels who will sing praise in Luke 2 in front of the shepherds talking about the glory of God. And then we have Simeon's song in the temple when Jesus is presented at eight days old. Four different songs, but each one commemorates an important aspect of the story. Each one points to the incredible work that God is doing. Each one is a different facet of what God is up to. So why does Luke include these songs? What's so important about these lyrics that Luke felt the need to include them? Well, there's just something about music, isn't there? Music connects to our hearts and our souls. That's why films incorporate music into their works, especially in those moments where they're trying to help us to feel something or to impress upon us the tension of the moment. It helps us connect better to what's going on. Indeed, there's something interesting. Neurobiology shows us that listening to music, and even better, singing or playing music, it lights up all these different parts of our brain. Music involves our very being. It connects to our hearts, our minds, our souls. Music evokes memory. We'll hear a certain song and instantly remember back to a time that mattered to us. We can remember all these words even if we haven't heard the song in years. We remember the way that we felt and what was happening around us. The Etta James song, At Last, was the song that Megan walked down the aisle to at our wedding. And every time I hear that song, I'm taken back to that moment. And each one of us has those experiences, those memories. Maybe you remember the song of a boy band that played on the radio constantly when you were growing up. And you haven't heard it in 20 years, but you can sing every lyric still. It's amazing how just songs kind of worm their way in there and stick with us. In fact, it's incredible that patients with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia Many of them can still sing lyrics and melodies even after they've lost the ability to speak. Music is one of the last things to go because music evokes memory. Music teaches us and it helps us to remember. How many of you still sing the alphabet song when you're trying to put files in order or whenever you're looking up for a book in the Bible or trying to remember the state capitals? That's why so much of what our teachers want our children to learn is what they sing to them in songs. It's, they, it's how they know they will remember it forever. And then fourth, music is the natural outpouring of our theology. Throughout the pages of the Bible, if you just flip from page to page, Old Testament and New Testament, we find song after song. The Israelites wrote songs. They dedicated numerous books to it, psalms that records the hymns and worship of Israel, Song of Songs, which describes romantic love, Ecclesiastes, which passes on lyrically the wisdom of following God, and numerous parts of the prophets. Indeed, biblical scholars argue that the oldest parts of the Bible are quite possibly two songs, the Song of Miriam and Moses in Exodus 15, and the Song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5. And both of those songs talk about the protection of God. Long before the words were written down, Israel passed on these stories and songs so that they could remember. When people want to talk about the amazing things God was doing, they wrote songs. When they struggled to make meaning of their circumstances, they wrote songs. When they were confused, frustrated, angry, dismayed, or overjoyed, they wrote songs. Because music makes meaning.
It expresses the soul. Music allows us to put into words that which we might not be able to say otherwise. As French novelist Victor Hugo once wrote, music expresses that which cannot be put into words and also which cannot remain silent. And so in this moment, Mary composes lyrics and sings a song. In history, it has been handed down to us called the Magnificat, which is Latin for the first words that we find here. The words magnifies or glorifies. Let's listen to these lyrics this morning. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. What beautiful words. What incredible meaning. I have some friends who are are Catholic priests, and their understanding of the doctrine of Mary and Marian dogma comes from these passages that we've read today. And they want us to remember that she is highly favored, that Mary is blessed among women. She is the mother of the Lord, and generations should remember her. And so my Catholic friends point to the Magnificat as as being foundational to their dogma of Mary. But if you listen to Mary's words here, what we notice is that Mary constantly downplays her role and consistently elevates God. Indeed, God is the, the, the object of every verb that's here. It is He who is doing the action. For Mary, it's not about how important she is, but it's about who God is. It's about what God has done. Mary uses this moment to exalt and magnify God because He is the Savior. He is the Mighty One. He is the One who is holy. He is the One who is merciful. It is by God's actions and by His mighty arm that everything that happens in this song will come to pass. And as she sings, what we ought to hear is this, the world turned upside down because God is about to do something unexpected, unanticipated, inconceivable, and extraordinary to many. God is going to upend the order of the world. You see, the world values power, but God exalts the powerless. The world elevates those who elevate themselves, but God lifts up the humble. The world sees the rich as most important, but God remembers and fills the hungry. God, through this child, is going to turn the world upside down. And that's why Mary sings. And it's why Jesus comes and proclaims, The last shall be first and the first shall be last. And whoever among you wants to be the greatest must be the servant of all. Because the kingdom, the ethics of the kingdom are vastly different than the power dynamics of the world. It's why Jesus chose to spend time with those of humble position. The lame, the sick, the blind, the possessed, the depressed, the down and out, the outcast, the aliens, and lepers, and tax collectors, and sinners, and those who were looked down upon because they were the ones who recognized their need 
for a Savior. It's why Jesus fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, and He turned water into wine because He wants to fill the hungry. It's why He calls us then to hunger and thirst for righteousness so that we will be filled. Mary sings about what Jesus is going to do. But if you look back at Mary's words here, you ought to notice something odd. Every verb, every verb that Mary uses is in the past tense. But she's speaking about future actions. She says, God has shown strength. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry. He has helped His servant Israel. So why does Mary talk about these things in the past tense when they haven't happened yet? I mean, sure, they happened in the past in the time of the prophets and others, but Mary is singing about the future. Well, scholars often call this the prophetic past. When people talk about what God is going to do in the past tense to show that the certainty of these actions... It's the irrevocable outcome that God is going to bring about. They talk as if it has already happened because it is so certain. It's like it's already taken place. God is going to do this so we can just say He has already done it. And through her song, Mary reminds us that God does great things for His people. He provides for them. He takes care of them. He tends to their needs. And God is going to do all of this through the birth of His Son into the world. If I were going to write the story about God taking on flesh, well, I would choose to write it in a very different way. You see, I would have the King of Kings born into a royal family. I would place him in a position of power and honor. I would give this child every single advantage in life. He would want for nothing. If the Bible were my story, Jesus would have been born into a lifestyle that groomed him for kingship. They would have pointed to his position and authority so that no one could ever doubt it. But God chose for Jesus to be born in a humble, even scandalous way. It ought to be striking and indeed mystifying to us that the one who put the universe into motion and created the laws of physics, who established the world and everything in it, the King of the universe, the Holy One who sits enthroned in heaven, eternally praised and proclaimed, chose to come to earth in the form of a helpless baby conceived in an unwed mother from humble, even poor or impoverished circumstances in a backwater town in the least important of Roman provinces, birthed in a stable among animals because they simply weren't important enough to warrant a room in the local inn. God, God turned all expectations on their head as He came to turn the world upside down. His way is better than my way, and He did all of this so that hope could be born. God is doing something amazing, something wonderful. God is bringing hope to a hopeless world. God is bringing relief to a people in need of sustenance. God is bringing liberation to a people oppressed. And so Mary can't help but sing. That's why her soul magnifies God. Because she knows, she is living proof, that nothing, 
that nothing is impossible with God. So I want you to think for just a minute. How can you magnify God this week? What has God done in your life? What has He done for you? How can you praise God even in the midst of your circumstances? See, Mary's weren't ideal, but she was blessed. Mary's situation wasn't what she might have chosen for herself, but God was at work. So if you were to sit and write a Magnificat to yourself this week, what might it say? I want to challenge you to do that, to try that, to put God's blessings into word, and to see what God has done and what God will continue to do because of His promises for your life. Because I think that no matter what is going on around us, we can find hope. We can trust that God is at work. We can rejoice in God our Savior. So may our souls magnify and exalt God this week, for He is good. God bless you.